0: Hi folks, Ken Weinstein here. With Lisa Monaco out again this week, I'm lucky to be joined by Jim Clapper. Jim is a retired Lieutenant General who served as President Obama's Director of National Intelligence. Even before becoming the nation's top intelligence official, Jim had a fascinating career in the military and in the intelligence community. He held a number of key positions within the IC, including leading the Defense Intelligence Agency and the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency and also serving as the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. I spoke with Jim about his personal journey and about the national security issues that defined his career. Every other week, Lisa Monaco and I break down national security issues on the United Security Podcast. Today, we are sharing a clip with listeners of Stay Tuned with Preet. To listen to our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership free for two weeks. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. College students with a valid dot edu email qualify for a discount at cafe.com slash student. That's cafe.com slash student. We look forward to having you as a part of the insider community. So shifting now from your experiences with the Soviet Union to your experiences with North Korea and a good bit of your book, the early part of your book focuses on North Korea. And I want to ask about a couple of the incidents there. But first, you actually make a very clear point of of laying out your thoughts about how we should be dealing with Kim Jong-un and the current Korean government. It's not not all the time that a, a careful intelligence person like yourself wades into the policy waters, but you Very intentionally did so here. Uh, Give us your, if you would, give us a little thumbnail of of your thoughts about how best to deal with what you call the hermit kingdom, North Korea.
1: Well, by way of background, I served in South Korea uh, for two years in the mid-80s, and I was uh, director of intelligence for U.S. Forces Korea. And so I I became, uh, as a result of that experience, something of a student of the peninsula. And thereafter, in any job I had uh, in the intelligence community or not, I always followed developments on the peninsula. So uh, fast forward to, to November 2014, and I was tapped by the White House to uh, travel to North Korea to retrieve uh, two of our citizens that had been incarcerated there for about, uh, well, one of them, about a couple of years. They've been in hard labor conditions, so I was retrieved them. And the reason that... North Koreans did this is uh, they were u- kind of using these two people as hostages in a sense to, to get us into dialogue with a view towards, uh, you know, changing the nature of the relationship. So uh, I'd been a student of, of the Korean Peninsula for, for 30 years and then got to, got to go there and actually interact with a couple of uh, very senior North Korean generals. And it really had a profound impact on me when, when I actually went there because uh, I had not appreciated the um, abject paranoia, the, the siege mentality that pervades uh, certainly the Korean, North Korean elite in in Pyongyang, and I was really really struck by that. So the first talking point that uh, I was instructed by the White House to re- to recite to the North Koreans was: "You must denuclearize." before we'll negotiate with you. And that was, you know, I've been there about five minutes and I deduced that that was a non-starter. And the North Koreans are are, are not going to denuclearize. Uh, and, you know, why should they? They, they view uh, their nuclear weapons as their ticket to survival. And they went to school on Muammar Gaddafi Who negotiated in Libya, negotiated away his weapons of mass destruction, and look how things turned out for him. You know, they kind of reminded me of that. They realize their weaknesses, particularly their economic weakness. They understand the imbalance between military imbalance between them and the armed forces of South Korea, buttressed by the United States. So, and they understand that no one would pay any attention to them if it were it not for their nuclear weapons. Or I should say more correctly, the perception of nuclear weapons, because neither they nor we know if they'll actually work. But it doesn't matter because they have what they've wanted, which is this the sense, the psychology of deterrence. So after that experience, I came around to the position that, as heretical as this sounds, that that maybe we ought to recognize de jure what we what is the de facto the situation. That is, North Korea is a member of the nuclear club has been for some time. and perhaps we might be better served to at least think about considering recognizing them that way and then work on inducing more responsible behavior. Now that is heretical view, neither. You know, domestically, neither the Republicans nor the Democrats would buy into that. But I just think that uh, you know a lot of people are, are not happy with the fact that the likes of Pakistan and India have nuclear weapons. But the fact is they have them. the fact is they've been responsible with them as stewards of these nuclear weapons. And so so might it be with North Korea. so i've I you know, I've posited that. Privately, and when I was in the government, and now publicly. And I realize that's uh, you know unpopular view, but the approach we've taken so far by all administrations, whether Democratic or Republican, and most recently the Trump administration, hasn't had very much luck trying to persuade the North Koreans to denuclearize. And I, it's my belief they just won't. And it'd be better... Uh, and, and I acknowledged as well, this is a, a big pill for the South Koreans and the Japanese, particularly to swallow. But I, I just think that perhaps we ought to give that some thought. So, yeah, that's a radical view. And, and you're quite right, and I appreciate your pointing this out, that this is a, a one occasion where I sort of delved into policy, which traditionally... Is not the province of intelligence. This intelligence is supposed to stay out of policy. But explain that. Well, there is a a line of distinction, a line, a, a red line, to use maybe a bad phrase, between the collection, the processing, and report, and analysis and reporting of intelligence that you've gleaned, foreign intelligence that you've gleaned about the activities and intentions of foreign countries, and conveying that to a policymaker. It is the policymaker's job, as the name implies, to decide what to do with it, if anything. And there's always been a fine line between intelligence, the gatherer of information, and those that use that information to implement policy. And it's just been a traditional firewall between the two camps of intelligence and policy, or in the case of the military, command. And it's just been kind of a uh, holy writ of intelligence to to maintain that separation. In this one particular case uh, involving uh, North Korea, I, I, you know, I kind of wandered into the policy realm. But whenever I had had that kind of discussion in in the confines of the White House Situation Room, I always made it clear that, hey, I'm stepping out of my lane here and just just to offer a, a, a view. On intelligence, intelligence, you know, can if you're if a policymaker is considering options uh, to to do, which is often the case, mo- most of which are no win op- no, no win options. But uh, anyway, what intelligence does is to portray what the reactions might be if you pick option A. This is how region would react. If you pick option B, this is how the region will react, or this is how the Russians will react, or how the Chinese will react. That's a perfectly legitimate thing for intelligence to do. It is not typically legitimate for intelligence to say, here's the option you ought to go for. So there is a, it's it's kind of a religious thing, I guess, but that's, that's the distinction.
0: Yeah. And, and it's interesting that you felt strongly enough to as you say, step out of your intelligence lane when it came to North Korea, but that is based on long personal experience uh, with South Korea and North Korea that you lay out in your book. And just uh, you know, just to summarize, you, you talk about a, a helicopter trip that you were on where which unintentionally went over into North Korean territory, and you got a you got fired at and a bullet in your rotor, and made it back uh, safely to South Korea. All you know, all these stories demonstrate how. Korea the Koreas have been on a knife edge longer than any other two countries really in the world when you think about it um and have been you know been that way since the end or the, well since the the end of hostilities uh, of the Korean War which actually never resolved in a treaty with the point you make and you know that that Knife edge quality is something we're still living with today. You also mentioned, just if you could give us a, a quick taste of this, an incident that, that seemingly almost touched off a war um, that you were looking into, with a, which, which started with this, something as innocuous as American troops trying to cut down a tree in a demilitarized zone. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, this was uh, 1978 and i was a uh, major i think and i was at pacific command headquarters in hawaii when they had this incident in the in the demilitarized so called demilitarized zone of korea which is a 4 kilometer wide swath that goes across the middle of the peninsula is 254 kilometers long and this is near pomnom Jam, which is famous for where the uh, war the armistice and the war on 27th of july of 1953 was signed And it's still the the focal point for what little interaction there is between uh, North Korea and the U.S. And so a small contingent of American soldiers that was up there entered into the one area to to clear some trees and brush, which were blocking visibility. And that elicited a violent reaction from the North Koreans, and they ended up killing one or two soldiers. And that was a very, very tense thing. And I remember I was back at, at the PACOM and I worked uh, three days straight, never went home. I uh, slept in the office, I guess. And I was constantly on a, well, what would now be email, but in those days it was called an operational communications link, direct teletypewriter, point to point link with my counterpart, who's an Army major, uh, in who was in Seoul. And we, we were orchestrating. Uh, changes in our collection posture. That's that's what we were doing. It was kind of a technical thing. And we were constantly working this. And there were, you know, B 52s plying up and down the southern, on the southern side of the DMZ. And it had all the atmosphere of, you know, we're going to go to war here pretty soon. And I, I, that was, and every, every situation that's uh, uh, where we've had some kind of incident with North Korea. I don't believe has has approached the level of uh, tenseness as that situation, the tree cutting incident and its aftermath did in 1978. So I've always used that in subsequent crises with North Korea as kind of the benchmark of uh, a really tense situation where we were, I thought, on the verge of going to war. So yeah, long history with, uh, with the Korean peninsula.
0: Okay, so moving on from Korea and your experience with, with the Koreas, you then go through in your book a series of incidents throughout the, the 90s and 2000s. I hope you've enjoyed this sample from the United Security Podcast. To listen to the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership free for two weeks. Interested students with a valid.edu email can head to cafe.com student. To the many of you who've chosen to join the Insider Community, thank you for supporting our work.